Thank you, Molly, and the rest of you. just seems right to hear those bells ringing this time of year. In fact, I've wondered as we've entered into this season, and I'm so thankful for the devotional that the Herrings brought to us because it really is... Um, it really is one of the most difficult seasons of the year for many. And many, in fact, this year will be experiencing their first losses and absences without loved ones. Or it is a constant reminder, an annual reminder of serious loss. You know, it really makes you wonder, you know, is there really any other time of the year when we are more tempted to have our happiness, the degree of it or the absence of it, dictated by circumstances, either ones that you remember or ones that you're presently in. I mean, the world, America in particular, seems to become Buddhist this time of year. Karma-loving gift givers and takers, he's making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice, and then you give, then you get what you deserve or you hang it over your children's head. Christmas is about grace, not karma. It's about the gift given to the world that the world did not deserve. Christ came to the world to save sinners like us, the naughty. He sees your litany of sins and it measures up with your heart as a sinner. He came to save sinful man, those who would believe. Yet there's nothing wrong with wishing well to others at Christmas. But what are we offering them? What are we charging them to do? What are we asking them to be? I get a little bit militant in my jab against the overly aggressive happy holidays when I'm leaving stores or at the checkout line at the grocery store. My face, I'm pretty certain, does anything but what they've just solicited me to do. I want to chime in back with a very embittered Merry Christmas. But what does it mean to be merry? It's not a word I use very often. Um, in fact, the title of today's message is way too pragmatic for me, a how-to message, how to have a Merry Christmas, yet it seems appropriate as we look at the Beatitudes. What does it mean to be happy? I had a good friend in college that I discipled for several of my years in college, and he was new to the Christian faith just at the end of high school, and, and we were living in proximity to each other. And um, I mean, I was a pretty intense 18-year-old. Some of the guys that we have here in college, I mean, they're that way, they're bent that way. And, and this guy, so basically, just so you know that there's a great consistency in me, he was always chiming me, you know, be happy, Mike, come on, be happy. I got so mad at him for saying that to me all the time. So even though I never played tennis, he loved tennis, so I'd go out and figure out a way to beat him, and I would just do things to make him unhappy to, so he could realize that it's so much more than just happiness. God wants you holy, not happy. But he wants you happy in your holiness. So what does that mean? What does that look like? This first part of the Sermon on the Mount really is essentially about happiness. And at its guts, that's what the word blessed means though it certainly has a greater depth to it than what we mean as Americans. 
But the kind of happiness, this is the kind of happiness that supersedes, exceeds all circumstances. It's the kind of happiness that can only be described as a delightful joy. But in what? In whom? When you break it down, we do see similar patterns to the law. I've told you before and in our introduction last week to the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways it is a beautiful sermon that really gives the heart intended meaning of the law. Remember, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience so they would be under, so they would understand and be convinced that this person, Jesus, is the Christ that they've known about from the Old Testament. And so it makes sense that he does teach us much about the law. And remember, too, that Matthew is writing at about the same time that Paul and Peter are also writing their letters. So this is a, a, a full, fully realized understanding of the gospel as he recounts the story of the Christ from a particularly Jewish perspective. I mean, you know that even in the Ten Commandments, they're broken down, in a sense, by half, where you have the first half that are about our righteous living before God. But then also, the second half would be, in light of that righteous living, the outworkings of that righteous living before God with our righteous living before men. That's essentially how you can break down the Ten Commandments. Christ certainly summed it up that way when he says, when, when the Sadducees were trying to trick him, which one's the best or greatest commandment, and he just summed them up, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes the whole of the law, and they would have understood it to be hundreds of sub-laws, but even the ten would have been broken down, and he ends up boiling it down to just two statements. We see that here in the bees where at least the first four Beatitudes really deal with our attitude, our response to God, our vertical relationship. And the ones that follow, particularly the most immediate three, are the outworkings of that vertical relationship to man. What does that look like? So I don't think these patterns are mysteries. I don't think they're codes to to peel back the layers and see something awe-inspiring as much just to see consistency in the narrative of the gospel. This has always been God's plan, that we would love him with all that we are, and consequently, it radically transforms how we treat others. Leon Morris, who wrote the Pillar New Testament commentary on the book of Matthew, really gives us this insight. So I wanted to give him credit in that and have certainly read it from other commentators as well. Now, let's go ahead and read the text. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. We'll read through verse 12. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before 
God, I pray that you give us understanding to the text. I pray that you would constrain my words to the meaning of this message to the original readers and hearers. God, may Christ be glorified and exalted, rightly so. And Lord, may it lead to our own transformation because of your work through your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. What does it mean to be blessed? Obviously, this word is used several times, so it's important that we understand what this word means. The word makarios, and I'm not going to throw a lot of Greek at you this this sermon, but it is important to understand the nature of this word. It really simply means being supremely well-off or fortunate. Now, it sounds a little bit odd, but basically it means being happy with God's favor. Now, when you see what he's talking about, it seems odd that he would say that this is God's favor for you. Number one, that you would be poor in spirit or that you would mourn. But we have to understand kind of how this flows. Because he says, blessed are those who are like this, for this is what's going to happen. So you're going to be happy in your state or your condition or your circumstances because this is what God has for you. But we have to understand something about this. Is that God has to make himself so delightful to you that you understand what it means to be poor in spirit or to mourn or to be willing to be persecuted for his name's sake. So in a sense, it is the delight full joy of who God is that causes us to live within our circumstances with these attitudes. And then through that, we are reminded of the more lasting, more everlasting happiness that comes to those who actually live in this way. So it's really kind of circular a bit. God makes us supremely delighted in him in being saved. He makes us want him. Because really what you see in these Beatitudes is this is not in the nature of man. It is not natural for us to be poor in spirit. It's not natural for us to mourn. It's not natural for us to be meek. It's not natural for us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. In fact, these things are radically unnatural to us in this world. So he both has to cause us to be happy overall in him. But then we learn to be happy practically in our present circumstances because he reminds us in that gospel that we will be happy forever in his presence. So basically, there is both a temporal happiness that we are to understand, but like the herrings read, it is a foretaste of an eternal happiness that will never end. And circumstances will then be removed. There will be no reason to overcome anything to decide or determine to be happy. To be favored by God. If you read through this, it's what's accounted for as God's favor. It flies in the face of the heresy that we know today as the health, wealth, gospel. There's nothing in this that would say you would have to literally transform all of what these things mean. Poor in spirit, for instance. Blessed are those who are poor. What does he say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what they have to do is do all kinds of transformation to this because they would say, well, if you are poor, God doesn't want you poor. And being part of God's kingdom is to have wealth. And God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to have everything. He wants you to show forth how great his kingdom is by having all of the money and all the investment and the big houses and everything else. And let's go ahead and make some shows about it and put it on TV. And basically, let's just show you know what it looks like to be a preacher who really probably doesn't know Christ at all. That's not what these mean. In fact, everything that's listed by Christ at the beginning of this great message helps us understand that it has nothing to do with our circumstances in this world changing. It has to do with your heart 
being transformed and your hope being set in a kingdom that's to come, not making this world a greater kingdom. My, uh, my wife knows my love language. If she understands sports, tech, and theology, I'm just like, that's great. That's awesome. It makes me want to stop watching sports, stop reading theology, and stop playing with tech devices and just go into the room and just enjoy my wife and just love on her and say, babe, that's my love language. Good. So my wife, actually yesterday, it might have been early this morning, sent me a text. She quoted a person that she follows on Twitter. And this other person is a pastor's wife. And... Um, and she was speaking my love language at about, it's about two or three in the morning. Jan's out of town this weekend. Uh, I'll tell you more about that in, in a minute as it relates to the message. But um, I had a difficult time sleeping because a couple of our kids decided that it was not going to be a, it's not a good night to sleep last night. Uh, and so in that, I was kind of awake at about two or three this morning. And I read this tweet that simply says, um, it just simply said, if you're living your best life now, then you're going to spend eternity in hell. Um, this might have been a little more bold than even I would say. Um, but the truth is, is that there is some truth in that, even for our text today, because it is all about this eventual hope that we will have in a kingdom that we know is to come, that Christ has secured for those who believe. We are not to make our life right now a kingdom in its own. Not one that's worth holding on to. In fact, we're charged throughout the Sermon on the Mount to hold on loosely to the treasures of this world to invest our lives in the things eternal. So to be happy means that we are happy in God and His kingdom and all that His kingdom entails, especially His kingdom to come. See, the world wants to clamor for you to make this world its kingdom. In fact, much of the much of evangelicalism has led that direction as well. Much of even Christianity has led that way as well. Let's put a Jesus sticker on it. Let's put an ichthus fish on it. And it just makes you feel better about all the stuff that you have because that's what you're going after just like the rest of the world. If you were to take all those bumper stickers off your car, what would the world know about you except you're pursuing the same thing they are? A kingdom now. The Beatitudes do not let you pursue the kingdom now. However, pursuing the kingdom that's to come has immense benefits. In fact, enough so that you can be immensely happy So this delight runs through like a golden thread through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. And we have to understand that its nature falls on the person of who Christ is. A delight in who He is, what He has secured for us, and what He will bring to us in His kingdom one day. So who are these happy people? First of all, it's the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. The scripture says this is not merely humility or loneliness of demeanor. This is not just people who walk around sad and pick up cans and recycle on, for, on behalf of other people. These are not people that are just down. These are people actually that realize that there is real present sin. And this actually speaks of spiritual bankruptcy. Being poor in spirit means that spiritually I have nothing to offer. It is spiritual bankruptcy. This is significant, right? Because for anyone to find their delight in God, they have to come to a place of understanding who they really are before this God. And that is, they have nothing of value that God looks upon and sees as meritorious or earning of His favor of salvation. The people that will delight the most in God have to first realize that they are completely and spiritually bankrupt. There's nothing in them of value that God will see that's worth investing in. They have to admit that, no, I have nothing. I have nothing. 
D.A. Carson says, to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. The kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race, earned merits, the military zeal or prowess of zealots, or the wealth of a Zacchaeus. It is given to the poor, the despised publicans, the prostitutes, those who are so poor that they know they can offer nothing and do not try. They cry for mercy and they alone are heard. Do you remember what Christ said? I did not come for the well. He wasn't saying they were spiritually okay. They just thought they were. He came for those who are poor in spirit, who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. What does he promise? They're fortunate because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is radically unnatural to the world. The world does not tell you that you have nothing of value and nothing of worth. In fact, the world tells you you're worth it. You don't need anything except their products to add to your already glorious face. That's what the world says. What does your life say? Poor in spirit. Again, you'll see later on when he starts to interpret not doing things religiously for the public like fasting and praying, not to put on a sad face. That's not what poor in spirit means. Poor in spirit, though, does help you understand that you do live. Certainly, I think, at a point in time when it comes to conversion, That you have nothing to offer and you must acknowledge alone that Christ is sufficient to save you and you have nothing. You bring nothing to Him. He doesn't help those who help themselves. He doesn't even help those who try to help themselves or have learned to help themselves. He raises the dead. That's how poor you are. But I also think for the Christian, for the believer, we have to then examine our lives and say, do we live with this kind of dependence? Not as if our salvation can be lost, but in understanding with this gratitude that, look, mine is the kingdom of heaven. Basically, what can man do to me? I have nothing to offer. Even when Satan reminds me of my past and my sinful history, I still remember that the only good in me is Christ. Will that not produce in you a happiness despite your present circumstances? I think it would. He goes on to say, those who mourn, those who mourn, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Tuesday of this week, we received a call that Jan's father had passed away suddenly in his sleep. It was a hard phone call. There's been mourning in our house. There's been some matter-of-factness to it. He's had advanced stages of Parkinson's. All we can surmise at this point was that he had an acute heart attack, and the sheets had not been disturbed one bit um, when my mother-in-law went to check on him, and... Even in fact, she had to get very close to see if he was still breathing. He just looked that still and undisturbed. There has been question and difficulty for us to understand the spiritual condition of my father-in-law and an intensely private man and uh, had not really been involved in the local church. Not that that certainly doesn't save you, but loving the body of Christ is certainly fruit-bearing. So it's been difficult, and and Jan's been there to just be alongside her mother. Um, In case you're wondering, he had donated his body to research, for Parkinson's research, and so there's really essentially not been a funeral, but we will have a memorial service probably uh, after the holidays. And yet this mourning and comfort does not really find its ultimate culmination in our dealing with family loss. It's a foretaste, meaning you can have loss in this world, 
you can mourn in this world and God can give you comfort in this world. But ultimately, what he's talking about is tied to number one, poor in spirit. This goes to a deeper level of understanding, not just forensically that you have spiritually nothing to offer, that you're spiritually bankrupt, but that you actually have sorrow over your sin. This is not just being injured. Certainly God does bring comfort. God is good. Even in a common grace world where he does bring comfort, even temporally to those who don't even know him, it's an it's a incredible kindness of the Lord. But it must always be comfort according to his truth so we should never offer false hope thinking that will comfort those who remain by giving false hope or false assurance of the eternal destiny of those who have passed if we did not know that's not comforting the promise we have here is those who mourn over their poorness of spirit they will be comforted who does Christ leave us but the comforter the Holy Spirit gives us assurance, guarantees our inheritance to come. Now again, there is a foretaste of the kind of comfort because we have all dealt with some kind of loss. Haven't you? Haven't you felt the sting of loss? The deep, deep comfort of God that comes at those times? You would scarcely disdain that. In fact, there's something about riding the ship in your own thoughts and heart. You reassess what's most important. You think about what you're investing in and that we don't know and we don't have that much time. Solomon speaks of the, the schoolhouse that morning is for us. It teaches better than when we're at a party. I want my kids to be instructed even as they labor to figure out how to respond, how to feel. Not really crying, feeling like you should, then crying at times you don't anticipate. I want this to be lesson learning. Because the nearness of God that we feel in, in temporal loss is a foretaste of the comfort that we feel eternally when He removes circumstantially the sting of death. Now, we know spiritually it's been removed because Christ is stomped on the neck of the demon, Satan, the evil one. When he rose from the dead, he, he conquered the greatest thing he could hold up against us in our most intense mornings in this world. But one day, he will fully relieve it. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 runs a very interesting parallel to this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He's not talking about social gospel stuff here. He's not talking about just going and starting a prison ministry, although we should. Frank's done some of that. Frank Hannon. We've, we've had some of those ministries, and they're valuable. But you go to the people in, incarcerated to proclaim to them the freedom that can happen ultimately. He's speaking of the gospel. In verse 2 he says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. I told you last week in our introduction that 
Christ, as he goes through the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't give a lot of, here's verse in the Old Testament, but he summarizes so much of what's in Isaiah and in Exodus and in Deuteronomy that he is just wielding left and right his perfect knowledge of the Old Testament law and summarizing its intent and its purposes and giving then its rightful interpretation. Not a new one, not a strange one, but the right one. And he is showing forth in the gospel, even in these Beatitudes, of what intensely makes us happy. They are fortunate because they will be comforted. Ultimately, in the assurance of the future promise of his kingdom, that we will escape corruption that is in this world, according to 2 Peter 1.4. The world says you don't need to be sad over your sin because you're not really that bad. Don't worry about it. Everybody makes mistakes. It's true-ish. What does your life say? Do you just blow off sin or do you feel its sting? And do you mourn over it and yet find repentance and comfort? The meek. This certainly deals with humility. The position of mind and heart that accepts God's dealing with you without disputing or resisting. It doesn't mean just accepting it, grinning and bearing it. It means literally without resistance. So if you're in a lowly estate, then you accept that. Not This isn't a statement about caste systems. Don't try to be better. Don't try to get an advancement at your job. Be somebody's doormat. It's not saying that. These are people who show God's, show trust in God's sovereignty in their life, in their most immediate circumstances. You'll see this later in Matthew 6 when he says, don't worry about what you eat or drink or what you wear. God cares even for the birds. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. It's a promise. He'll provide. The meek are those who trust God in their present circumstances. And the promise is, is that these meek will inherit the earth. Now, he doesn't mean inherit in the sense that something dies and they'll get something. It actually means possession. They will possess the earth, meaning everything that God has provided for you, you will have. You may not have it in spades, but you will have all that you need. So meekness then automatically puts you in position to say, God, whatever you provide, I'm satisfied. The world would not promote that whatsoever. It would promote pride in yourself. It would promote get all that you can while you can because that's all you're going to get. Seek change. Go for the promotion. But at least with the idea of meekness, I would caution you or at least challenge you in a positive sense to pray about it and make sure that you're not seeking such a thing so that that thing satisfies you. Be satisfied in God. Make sure that you're not seeking something in this world to give you satisfaction that only God can give. Because you know that's never enough. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the Scriptures tell us that this whole sermon really is about God's righteous requirements and the delight that is found only in God. That we can attempt to be satisfied with other things and things in this world, but it ultimately will not satisfy. And the one who can satisfy us, we cannot find satisfaction in on our own righteousness. Because we are not righteous. 
To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for God Himself because this is the characteristic of God. He is altogether righteous. He is holy and pure and true. You cannot want God and not want what God is any more than you can want God and not want Jesus. This is intense physical language that He uses to show us the spiritual pursuit and the consequential satisfaction. Did Christ not give us this? I am the bread of life. Woman at the well, but I have water that if you drink from that, you'll never thirst again. It is found in Himself. It is salvation found in Him. It is His righteousness. And you will be satisfied. You will be full. This is very freeing, actually. Because our tendency is to earn. Our tendency is to fight and claw and scratch to try to earn God's favor. Or even earn the approval of men. You can even be a Christian, truly a Christian, but still veer into these moments and these times when you're given to performance-isms. Trying to measure up and then you don't. And that expectation breaks your back and then you give into gross sin. Why? Because that affair or that pornographic image or something else tells you that you're something. You're valuable. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. What are you hungering and thirsting for now? When you think of those images, what are you pouring into the cup? What are you laying on the plate? What are you dreaming about is in the cupboard? Are you hungering and thirsting for Him? Or are you just asking Him to bless your hunger and thirst for something else in this world? They are fortunate because they will be satisfied and it is promised. I do want to say this quickly here, that... He gives us this hunger and thirst. We don't naturally hunger and thirst for Him. I say that because I think it's important for us to understand that there is no one ever in the history of mankind who has ever gone before the face of God or however that entrance is into the eternity and say, you know what? I really wanted you, but because I wasn't one of the elect, you didn't let me in. Because you didn't choose me, I didn't get the ticket... Guys, Scripture is clear and plain on this one fact. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have turned away. Everyone. No one wants God unless God draws them by the Spirit. No one. So only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those that God has already been moving in to show just how satisfying He is. So make no mistake, that hunger and thirst for the things of God is wildly affirming. The world would tell you to hunger and thirst for stuff, possessions. To measure your worth by your jewelry or your car or your house. If you've already become poor in spirit, you understand you're worthless anyway, in all the right ways. And that He infinitely makes you worthy. But not because of you, but because of Christ in you. The merciful. Showing mercy and kindness. Now, let me make this really, really plain. When He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He is not saying that these are people who just go and do acts of mercy. 
What he's saying is, and this word for merciful, it literally means you're full of mercy, meaning you are bent towards being merciful. So this isn't just a coordinated mercy effort where you go and, and clean up some stuff or help some old ladies or whatever. We should do those things. Those who are bent towards mercy will do merciful acts because they want those merciful acts to turn into opportunities to declare what is most merciful, which is the gospel. But these are not just people who do merciful things. These are people who are bent that way. You can't act of mercy yourself into the kingdom of heaven. Those who have been shown mercy will extend mercy. And they are fortunate because they will continue to receive that mercy. Basically, it's fruit-bearing. It's comforting. My wife gets this a whole lot more than I do. She is so forgiving of me. And it's built into her because of many things that the Lord did early in her life. That even on a most practical level, she extends mercy because she desires mercy from me. We haven't learned a whole lot in, it'll be 20 years in about three weeks. But like any of you that have been married for any length of time, you know that grace is at the heart of a marriage that's even decent. Mercy. The world says, well, first of all, the world would rarely pay attention to this, at least unprovoked. See, if people are paying attention, or if it's a tax write-off, and they'll be merciful all day long. What did Christ say to the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, again, your righteousness is filthy rags. Or, in a chapter later, don't be like them. They give alms to the poor so that everyone can see it. They make their face dirty when they're fasting so you can see how miserable they are spiritually and wow at them. No. The world says that when you are provoked because of how it will benefit you or how it will make you feel better about yourself, maybe you'll do an act of mercy. But Christian mercy is unprovoked, except by the gospel. Oh, sure, we can watch videos play at times and go, wow, we've got to give to those people. We've got to raise the money for those people. I understand that provocation, and it's good. But we still have to examine our hearts because the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. That means one who is infinitely happy in God. That means you're not giving out of guilt. That means you're not giving because you think it will earn you favor from God. And you're not giving because you're mad at where the other money goes and you're going to make sure it goes here. Sorry, God doesn't need your money and neither does UBC. Sorry, Finance Committee. No, I know you all agree with that too. But that's true. Blessed are they, and it should come down to every way in which you deal with those that need to see mercy and have mercy shown to them. The pure in heart, they're infinitely happy. The scriptures say that this has to do with cleansing. It's a large, all-encompassing word that deals with physical, spiritual, and ethical cleansing. It's not just moral purity, but it certainly includes that. But it includes all of who you are, in and out. You know where Christ is going. You have heard it said... You shall not commit murder, but I say.
the pure in heart. The heart is the seat of understanding. They would have understood Cardus to be thoughts and feelings, passions, your will. It's informed by truth. It's not just your emotions. It's all of those things. It's the center of one's being. Matthew 15, 19 says, Christ says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. They're fortunate because they will see God. We know this biblically. Only the pure see God. If you understand poor in spirit and have mourned over your poverty, spiritually speaking, you know that there is no way that a person partially pure or sort of holy is going to see God. You've come fully to the realization that there is nothing good in you at all. Because God doesn't just allow half-truths in His presence. God despise, despises lies altogether. To err with just one letter of the law is to be accountable for all of it, says James. All of it. And all of its fury and wrath. Only the pure in heart will see God. Are you pure in heart? What are your thoughts like? Now, maybe you struggle with your thoughts. I mean, try being one of our ABF leaders or one of your pastors or elders who teach every week. It stinks. Hate it. Thoughts are always a battleground. But what goes on there is no less of sinful battle than something you might do externally. Purity goes deep to the unseen places, to the heart what you understand, what you think, what you feel, your passions, your will. We know then that this, that being truly saved, it changes our desires, our affections, our passions, our thoughts, and our wills. To be saved means that we have been made pure by His righteousness in every possible way. We've not been partially saved and then we kind of achieve a little more of that as we go along. No, I understand sanctification. I understand its progressive nature. But we are more living out the spiritual reality that already is. We're not acquiring more of that spiritual reality. He has made us totally and entirely pure when He has saved us. Your only hope is the hope in you. Christ, His glory. The world says, what possibly could the world say? The world is impure on every side, in and out. You don't buy much of what you hear and see. You know, your politics may line up great with Newt Gingrich, but when you understand the nature of the man's personal life, you don't buy much of what he says, even if he's in your camp. Because he's had no problem casting a wife and just throwing her off to the side. Is that judgment? Well, I mean, to a, I'm not damning him to hell. Maybe he's truly saved now. I don't know. But there are so many. I'm just saying that the world, even the world that seems to line up with our particular points of view, we don't buy it. We see impurity everywhere. We have to gain our understanding of purity from the Word. 
we have to be renewed in our hearts, our mind, to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The world is fully and totally depraved. The peacemakers. The Scriptures tell us that these are peace lovers, but yes, but not in a passive sense. Meaning just hands off, whatever. No, these are peacemakers. These are people who step in the middle and try to bring peace between two opposing sides. I would argue that in the greatest sense, these are gospel tellers. These are evangelists. These are people who will seek to share the gospel even in dangerous situations because what? You're proclaiming it to daughters of Satan and sons of Satan from a person who is a child of God. Those are opposing forces. Some will die in that conversation. But many will come and they will repent. And they will be saved. Whatever peace is seen on this earth or on this planet is temporal at best. There will always be another wall. There will always be another threat of violence. There will always be another dictator. There will always be... I mean, look, the world would not have loved Nelson Mandela 20 years ago near like they love him now. Many, many in the world would have seen him as a terrorist. But many saw him as a freedom fighter. I think the earthly good of bringing peace and end to apartheid in South Africa has been phenomenal and beautiful to see on an earthly plane. And I'm not bringing disdain upon his name. I'm just saying that the perspective is he had a long line of violence in his pursuit of what he saw to be lasting peace. Christ had all the violence done to him. All of it. And he brings lasting peace. Eternal peace. The world, we can run to Mother Teresa and Gandhi and countless others. We can also run to Churchill or the coming down of the wall or what about Nagasaki or Hiroshima? What does it take to stop the violence? A massive act of violence? I'm not even promoting passivity. That's not really in my DNA too much. I am challenged by people who challenge me back when it comes to movies and books and shows. You know, I, I will look at the language and adult content and make sure that stuff's not there. I don't even pay attention to the violence sometimes. Because I want to see God's justice somewhere in there. But ultimately, we see Christ, the ultimate peacemaker, has called us not to be pacifists. I would defend my home. I would. When my daughters are allowed to court or date, I'm pretty sure I will articulate my willingness to begin jail ministry from the inside to suitors I don't think are valid. But without treating that too tongue-in-cheek, we do have to be challenged on what does it look like. Certainly within the church, there is no room for division. The peacemakers are made peace with, and it shows forth the gospel of peace. There's no room in local churches for division. None. We talk it out. We can work it out. We're family. It doesn't mean we'll always agree. It doesn't mean we're blindly uniform. But we must be united. 
And that is based on the person of Christ. And so, therefore, I would contend that if Christ is not regularly taught from the pulpit in your classrooms, then you have no hope of real unity. Because it's going to be based on something superficial, because everything else is superficial compared to the right preaching and teaching of the Word, the gospel-centered, Christ-exalting Word of God. Not exalting that as being the only thing necessary in ministry, but if it doesn't come in its teaching, it will not extrapolate out into the living of the church. The persecuted. I know I've got to go quickly here. The persecuted. What do the Scriptures say? Matthew uses this word four times in this chapter alone. It's as if when Matthew is writing this, after the church has already begun and it's been established and there's missionary journeys going out and people have already been in prison and martyr, it's like he kind of knows something. This is to suffer, though, on account of righteousness. You know what 1 Peter 4, 15 and 16 says, let, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. See, many would bring an accusation against those who would be persecuted because they believed that anything bad that was happening, you remember Job and his friends, was a result of sinful living. Evil that you must have done that must be secret. That's why these bad things are happening to you. But as new Christians, he was saying, certainly persecution is going to occur. It's going to happen. In fact, actually, he and I'm going to group these together, he goes on and, and speaks about being reviled because this word for suffering, for righteousness, it actually means to be chased away or mistreated. It could even go all the way to being martyred. But reviled actually has to do with kind of casting the teeth, gritting the teeth. It even includes basically slander or more verbal kind of abuse. I want, you, I want to be careful how I say this, but I do love that the Scripture ties these things together because that as well is persecution. Not just the physical kind, but even the verbal kind. And maybe us in the West, we are the ones who are experiencing more of the reviling kind of persecution. But this is an overarching statement about, for the sake of Christ, those who will be treated wrongly in the world. It intensifies the previous statement on persecution. The world is going to hate you. You see this in the book of Acts. Because you see Luke describe the facial expressions of the leaders who are listening to Paul and Peter. I mean, they're gritting and grinding their teeth. The world hates the gospel. And on a formal level, the way they're going to persecute, and the way they've already begun this, is by extrapolating out from what they believe to be racial rights and expanding that to things that we would consider to be rights of choice, meaning they're encapsulating those who are who have the rights with for gay marriage, for instance, to be the same kind of rights that you would have if you're African American or Hispanic. It's not an ethnic group. It's not. We're all born sinners. I guess we can all defend our rights to be sinners. Now I'm not even exalting it beyond other sinners. I hate racism. It certainly has no place in the church but also has no place in the church to tolerate or condone sinful lifestyles. And yet, we should be peacemakers. To proclaim peace, not political disdain against particular groups. But then they capture this in their hate speech. It's very much going on in England right now. 
and it will go on increasingly here. Eventually, politics, the world's political systems, it will get their hand. They have turned and made the separation of church and state so the opposite. What it was intended to be was that the state shall not influence the church. What they basically turned around to say, we don't want the church influencing the state. In doing so then, they will start to remove rights and privileges, and they're already in the process of doing that now. And they will then expand their reach when it comes to hate speech, that if we declare something the Scripture has to say to be sin, they don't like what that says, there will be a fine or a penalty and perhaps eventually jail time. The world's going to show forth their gritted teeth against the gospel. Ultimately, he says rejoice. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, the peacemakers are going to be called sons of God. Their identity will be in Him. Even when the world then persecutes you and says you're not one of us or not one of them, and they cut you off, you have the assurance of knowing that you're one of His. That even when you're persecuted, you know you're part of the kingdom of heaven. You're not a citizen here. When the world shows that it hates you and what you stand for as a Christian, you're reminded in that moment, don't be surprised. You're not a citizen here. You're passing through. You have the hope of a future kingdom. So rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says. Merry Christmas. Rejoice always. Poor in spirit, hate your sin, mourning over it, loathing yourself for what you've done, and yet rejoicing that there has been one who has relieved it. Your lowly estate, your meekness, even if you're position is not to be able to buy as many Christmas presents this year, or maybe you can't afford any. Know that Christmas is not about that. Your present circumstances cannot steal your joy. But do know this, your present circumstances can also rob you of your joy. Maybe you're having a battle meekness from a different angle. Maybe you've had a really, really good year. Gift giving and gift receiving does not make for a Merry Christmas. You know this. But if you don't attach it to the gospel, your flesh will surface real quickly there. Have a Merry Christmas. Be the kind of person that God has made you to be in the person of Christ. See, in these Beatitudes, we see the impossibility of them. We see our inability to keep them ourselves. We see in them, though, the characteristic of Christ who perfectly kept these things. So we almost see this culmination of all of the Sermon on the Mount that we see righteous requirements of the law that we can't keep, righteous requirements of the law that Christ did keep perfectly, but also righteous expectations for those who are then in Christ to strive to live for. That's what we see. I can't do this on my own. Right. And the failure of any of them damns you if you're without Christ. But in Christ, because He is righteous, you can strive not to be saved because He's already saved you, but you can strive to be a person like this. Even at a time of year, especially at a time of year, when circumstantially speaking, our merriment is so precarious. We see in these our sanctifying pursuits. 
Look at the Beatitudes again and look at your circumstance and say, God, am I here? Is this my, my pursuit? Am I happy in all of these different expressions of who I'm to be for you? They're practical. Maybe they're incremental joys, but allow them to spring you forward to an everlasting joy. Meaning, maybe you're just having to deal with the sting, like we are of a loss in family this year. And then when we go home for Christmas, we'll feel it afresh. There will be an absence in the room of a father-in-law, a man that I've known for 30-something years. I mean, I'll miss him. There will be loss. And even if we have questions, I'm reminded that the hope of a child of the kingdom of heaven is that we don't have to live in such a way that leaves questions. Eventually, through the worst kind of mourning, stick around long enough, tell yourself the gospel long enough, you will find in there So I think that's how you have a Merry Christmas. See Christmas as joy right now. But it also indicates for you a joy that is yet to come. So everything that you would love for Christmas to be, every reminiscent thought or happy moment, and then those expectations are just squashed because something happens, something burned or a dog ate something. It could be tiny. But look, you're not gonna you're not gonna battle for true joy at Christmas by just repeating to yourself, Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for the season. That's not gonna be enough in and of itself. This gives you enough. Because in it you find all of the gospel. Give your gifts with the desire. And delight of the gift of who Christ is. Don't threaten your kids. Santa's not coming if you don't. Just tell them Buddha's on the roof. He just happens to be wearing a red suit this year. Same shape. Wearing a cap. He's actually bald, really cold. Guys, I'm not saying... Don't even have your time with Santa. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, whatever you choose to do... Whatever you're teaching, you're teaching. Don't be haphazard with it. Receive gifts, holding on to them loosely. Because you know that you've been naughty. You don't deserve any good thing. And remind yourself that Christ has given you all. Look, if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't really get all this. Well, I would say at least this much. At least start with the first two. Poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven if you understand. Poor in spirit. Mourn, you'll be comforted. Basically, do you understand that you are spiritually bankrupt if you don't have Christ? Do you understand that there's not enough going to church or Christmas carols that will possibly come close to saving you. Not going to happen. 
Acknowledge that you're spiritually bankrupt. Acknowledge that you have nothing to offer this good and perfect God. But Christ is all that you need. Mourn over your sinful estate, your present condition and sinfulness. But then rejoice because you can be comforted, but the only comfort from God in His kingdom comes in the person of Christ. So acknowledge that you're a sinner today in need of a Savior. You're not in need of a help. You're in need of a Savior. You're not in need of a doctor. You need a miracle worker. You need a resurrector. You need God. Acknowledge Him. God, I pray that there would be some who acknowledge for the first time that they are poor in spirit, they're bankrupt spiritually. I pray that there would be some who would even mourn over their sinfulness. God, I pray that you would bring those who are in Christ to understand the depth of the kind of happiness and joy they actually can experience regardless of all the circumstances that are barreling down upon them this season. Financial woes or the loss of loved ones. Great difficulty or even great circumstances of blessing. God, they can distract us from lasting joy. Lord, may we see in these beatitudes, resolutions, to choose to delight in Christ, the one who has perfectly performed and lived all these things on our behalf. And then, God, may we find in them a deep joy that even our loved ones will so wonder at that they inquire, why do you have this hope? This has been a tough year. Or this has been a great year. Why didn't you buy yourself this or go do that? God, may we be ready in season and out of season to give a reason for our hope, a reason for our joy, a reason for our deep-seated merriment. And it's in Christ alone. It's in His name we pray, amen.